Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 140 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hey there. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hey there, hey. Guys, Toby's here. Yay. 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 As always. It's such an appropriate thing that you said. I know. That's why I said it with such, I don't know, a plum. Is that a word? I don't know. It is a word. A I don't know if word. it's the right word. <laughs> yeah. Toby, you must update us on all things living in an RV. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, as fun as my wife and I imagined it being, it is far more fun than that. And as stressful as we imagined it being, it's far more stressful than that. It feels it's one of those experiences where like there is no middle of the peaks and valleys. It's just like either the most fun you've ever had at once or like the most stress you've ever experienced at once. So it's like that. What's an example of like a most fun moment and a most stress moment? So one day we went to the Umpqua National Forest in Oregon and we were like, let's check out these hot springs. And I've been to like some hot springs that are like, you know, somebody slapped a hot tub (laughs) on a pile of rocks and was like, this is a hot springs. (laughs) So I was kind of expecting that. But instead we went there and it was like this like 150 foot vertical cliff with like natural rock pools in it and 108 degree water that was like coming out of the cliff and you could start at the top and they were really hot and then they got cooler as you went down and there was one on the same level as the river and you could like sit in the hot spring on the level of the river and there were like bats in the hot spring and like a little cave in the back it was crazy so that was a highlight did you say bats i I was like i was with you until you said there were bats in the hot tub with you like bartok from anastasia yeah were they (laughs) talking to you Talk. He had like an accent and he had boots. Did he have a boots? Is it also like, I don't know. like Batty from Fern Gully? That's, yeah, he, did he do I'm, a rap? <laughs> I mean, maybe in bat language. <laughs> like Man from the Batman movies? Ah, uh, yes. Like Man from the Batman movies. That was good. Okay, so that's uh, a highlight. A low, point would be, a low point would be like, because we don't have any set plan. We don't have like a place to stay every night. And we've been uh, doing this thing where it's called boondocking, where you stay on kind of public use land. And so sometimes you end up in these incredible remote locations and it's totally beautiful and you're the only person there. And then sometimes you're like by the side of the highway and you're like, let's make sure we lock all the doors so no one just opens our door and checks to see if we're in here so Mm. you know highs and lows well i've never heard the word boondocking i never knew the definition of the word boondocking until now and i'm very excited for you i feel like it's one of those older words it probably meant something else back in the day but now it's been co-opted gotcha well toby where are where in the world are you right now (laughs) i mean i felt like you wanted to say where in the world is common san diego and a part of you died that you couldn't say that yes so you can say it if you want well i was trying to think of a like a jingle like where in where in the usa where in the world is (laughs) tobin parker (laughs) flat thank you thank you i am in southern portland oregon that's that's where i am southern portland uh at my sister betsy's house um she and her husband warren are hosting us while we're like hanging out taking some showers making some minor repairs awesome excellent how have have you been bailey and dylan how's i don't see you guys like twice a week anymore it makes me very sad i know yeah uh we're good maggie is walking up a storm she's just walking everywhere Mm -hmm. um which is very cute except now she's a very smart baby and she knows where i am at all times now and so like if i'm brushing my teeth she'll like walk into the bathroom and be like i would like to stare at you brushing your teeth and if you don't let me i will be very upset are you a private brusher bailey no i'm fine with her coming in it's just kind of weird to be like oh hi maggie (laughs) 
and it eats into my playtime too because because I'll be playing with her and it's like, well, what do you want to do? I want to watch mom brush her teeth. Oh no. And she doesn't say that. She just <laughs> says, mama, mama, mama. While walking over. While walking. It's pretty cute. It'd be pretty great if she just simultaneously started walking and started saying sentences like, I want to watch mommy brush her teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. How are you, Andrew? How is um, Woodstock life and boondocking? Well, I haven't been doing a lot of boondocking. Uh, Woodstock has been good. We had our first major repairs. We, we, uh, we got our roof fixed, but I haven't been there very much, honestly. I've been about... And around, uh, Jillian had a family vacation um, that I crashed. And then I was on a writer's retreat. And actually, I'm in Maine now. So uh, I don't know. Woodstock's probably fine. Hopefully, it'll still be standing when we get back. Well, in all of our adventures, did anybody pick up any, you know, shame? Why did you look at me when you said that, Bailey? (laughs) I I could tell you were looking at me from across the country. (laughs) Bailey always looks to the east. It's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have a little shame. Um, Mm. I don't know if this will come up on the podcast because I bought it because a lot of my friends are reading it now. So I don't know if I want to wait for it to be drawn by the fates or Dylan's devilish hand. (laughs) But I picked up a copy of Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner, also known as Japanese Breakfast, the the musical artist, uh, which I'm very excited to read. I hear really good things about it. It's a a memoir about her mother's death that is expanded from an article she wrote for The New Yorker. And I hear only good things. So I'm hoping to hoping to read that relatively soon. Awesome. Andrew, would you like to hear one more good thing about it? Yes. Yeah, I read it. It's great. (laughs) Cool. What what suspense you brought me there, Toby? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There's another good thing for you. Oh, excellent. Uh, any other yeah, shame? Just the one. Just the one shame. Just the no, one. just the one shame for me this time. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got a book, but we don't have to talk about it. Oh, Come on. <laughs> Um, I know I just picked up, uh, I think at this point I have all of Grady Hendrix's books. Mm. So I, I just got We Sold Our Souls, which I think is like a band plus Faust, um, which looks fun. Um, and then I think I will have read all of Grady Hendrix. Wow. Tight. I was just going to say that it's fun to discover a new author and be like, I like this person so much that I want to read everything they've written. If you had told me three years ago that you had finished Grady Hendrix's bibliography before Jane Austen's on this podcast, I would not have believed you. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> also, I would have asked you, who's Grady Hendrix? <laughs> I guess I don't, I don't have any shame. I will announce some future shame, but I also want to just kind of hype up something I'm really excited about. Next month on September 14th, The Wisdom of Crowds by Joe Abercrombie drops. And it, it will be the ninth book in his First Law series. It's going to be the concluding book of this giant fantasy series. And I, I will say I, something I'm a little ashamed of in my reading life is I have read uh, all eight previous books uh, on audiobook this year uh, <laughs> without really meaning to. Reread or read for the first time? Yeah, that's a good Re-read. question. Reread. Wow. Reread. Oh, boy. Yeah. He's one of my favorite authors working today, for sure. And I, I mean, I have not been this hyped for a book release in a long time. All right, guys. Well, shall we get into it? Shall, shall we talk about some ultimate truths? Shall we drop some truths? Let's give the people what they want. <laughs> which is the ultimate truth. That's what we always promise during this uh, podcast, right? Yeah. Toby, yeah. I mean, yeah. Toby, do you know any truths? I know Robert Rankin's The Book of Ultimate Truths. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that was an A-plus transition. Good job, me. 
<laughs> Excellent transition. All right, here we go. Logline style. A comic novel in the style of Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. Robert Rankin's The Book of Ultimate Truths chronicles the adventures of Cornelius Murphy, a skinny 17-year-old with large hair, and his suitcase-sized friend Tuppe as they search the globe, or more accurately, England, Scotland, and Wales, for the as-yet unpublished chapters of a masterwork by the deceased guru Hugo Rune. Sounds whimsical. Right. Extremely whimsical. So he's whimsical. got a suitcase-sized friend? <laughs> yeah. Why, why, we, why we know that he's a suitcase size? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> and I know, I don't know if his name is Tuppy or Tuppa. I don't know. I go, it's one of those ones, you know, usually when you read like a fantasy name in your head, you settle on a, you know, a way to pronounce it in your head about halfway through the book, even if it's a weird one. But this one I never could nail down. And they never say like, it's Tuppy. It rhymes with Cuppy. So there's no help. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so any of our pages have read any Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett, uh, you'll immediately know what this book is like. Uh, it's like a madcap adventure where the plot is kind of as bendy as it needs to be to service any joke that the author wants to make. I'd have to say, if you know all those authors, if I had to rank them in the order of the faithfulness to their own world and their own plot, I'd go Douglas Adams is the most faithful, then Terry Pratchett is a little bit more willing to kind of throw plot out the window in service of a joke, and then Robert Rankin is really out there. He seems to be having a good old time writing these and doesn't really care too much about continuity. Hmm. Um, and I don't really mind because uh, he actually carries it off, which is great. But if you had to rank in those three authors, what would you do? <laughs> oh. So this book is uh, about like a, a young kid um, who is searching for the lost chapters of this mad guru's book, The Book of Ultimate Truths. Apparently, like an edition of it was published back in the day, but there were chapters that were too incendiary, that had too much truth, and they were suppressed. And, uh, you know, this kid is searching for them. And that's the whole plot of the book. He just goes from town to town and chaos follows in his wake. And uh, it's a really, really fun romp. So Rankin does the classic thing here. He inserts sections of the book of Ultimate Truths uh, by Rune for us to laugh at. An example of a chapter that we read from this book is The Mystery of the Byros, which to us in America would be just be pens, <laughs> like, you know, black and blue, normal writing pens. <laughs> the Mystery of the Byros, and he describes how all Byros are sentient, and they hate to be used or in the company of one another, and they scurry off at the first opportunity they have to be by themselves and lose themselves. And this is all based on the fact that you can never actually finish a pen, and you always lose it before it runs out of ink. <laughs> so that's one of his ultimate truths, is that all pens are sentient, and that they hate each other, and they hate you, and they run away from you. Gotcha. I love mm -hmm. it. <laughs> Cornelius, our hero, very typical of these books. He's very affable. He's very charming. A lot of these books have protagonists who are deeply uninterested in traditional work of any kind. They really hate having normal jobs, which always to me kind of indicates these authors really hated having normal jobs. <laughs> But once they're given like a quest, they're very intelligent and they're very capable in relation to those quests. Tuppe, Tuppe, Tuppy is, you know, the classic weird sidekick. He just seems to be a really nice person who is incredibly small. How small is never specified, but he's like falling into purses and uh, like literally climbing chairs to sit, into, sit in them. So like between a suitcase and a bowling ball. He's a very small person. When you said he was the size of a suitcase, I thought you meant that he was like square shaped. <laughs> 
Yeah, I thought that I... you meant he was carried around in a suitcase the entire <laughs> at one point, time. At one point, he is. So Ooh. there you go. Check off suitcase, though. You can't mention somebody can't is the size of a suitcase and not put him in one. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely true. And thank God Rankin uh, follows that rule. <laughs> they have a mysterious patron who's sponsoring them on their quest. They have a terrifying eldritch enemy. They have a quest that sends them bopping along from location to location. And every place they visit, they leave in ruins. It's all very typical comic novel stuff. It's very fun. I was actually surprised that I'd never heard of Rankin because this kind of stuff is right up my alley. And just from like looking around, it looks like Pratchett certainly was aware of him because he blurbed a bunch of his books. Hmm. So it's a very obvious comparison to compare him to Pratchett because they're working in the same kind of style. And it just, it's very interesting to see someone who's working so similar to someone else you know, and then it just wasn't nearly as successful. Mm -hmm. So one of my theories about why Robert Rankin is not as uh, popular as Terry Pratchett, and this is just shooting from the hip here, no real evidence, is uh, Pejo's, if you're not a follower of our Instagram, Please navigate to our Instagram and take a look at the cover of this book. It is perhaps the most upsetting and hideous book cover I've ever seen in my life. I gave this book as a gift to my brother-in-law just yesterday, and he looks like he wished I hadn't given it to him. It's like a very, I mean, if you don't have time to look at the Instagram, the background looks like psychedelic vomit. It's like in red and green. And then there's a picture of this terrifying silver man who looks like Sideshow Bob with like weird eyes. And he's holding out this furry fish to the to the viewer. I think because the Sideshow Bob guy has big hair, he's supposed to be Cornelius, the main character, which makes no sense because one, I like Cornelius and I hate this silver man. (laughs) And two, (laughs) two, he's not supposed to be silver. I just don't understand it. Um, But on the inside cover, it is clearly stated that this is a Robert Rankin-created statue. He made this thing, and he wanted it on the cover of his book. And on the inside cover, there's pictures of all the editions of his other books, and he has put his hideous sculpture on all of them. And, I mean... I literally would not pick this up at the bookstore. (laughs) I hate the cover so much. And in fact, when it was given to me by uh, my good friend and my wife's good friend, Sabine, I was like, oh, okay, thank you. (laughs) And and didn't really look forward to reading it. But really, it's a great book. I'm just imagining his agent or his publisher being like, wait, uh, the statue again? Are you you sure? You sure there, Robert? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm betting that's the way it went. And then lastly, I I have just a really quick wonder, like a question to put out there, which is I was thinking about, it's so nice to find a new author. I really liked this book. Um, I liked his style. I'm probably going to read more of him. But it made me think, like, I don't know who our modern day Pratchett or Adams or Rankin would be. Um, I don't know anybody working in the comic genre space who's as dominant as those names were back in the day. And I don't want somebody to come along and just like completely ape their style, but it's like there's plenty of new stuff in the fantasy genre to make fun of and in the sci-fi genre to make fun of. I'm just really surprised that no one's come along. And Pejo's, if I'm not aware of somebody, please like let me know. If Send us a message or something because I love this stuff and it just occurred to me like, oh, all this stuff that I'm reading is you know at the most current from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a new author out there. Have you heard of an author called Grady Hendrix? <laughs> 
<laughs> and also, please, dear God, I hope this new author is a woman because the space is way too dominated uh, by men in the past. And then, so yeah, real quick, elves. My elves are, it's funny. There's plenty of plot to keep me going. And Cornelius and Tuppy's friendship, um, I actually ended up caring about it and I like them a lot. My orcs are, there's a few outdated jokes. Um, you know, it's now a 30 year old book. It gets a little cringy sometimes, but it's really not too bad. Um, there's some fluffery with the plot that kind of crossed the line between like, oh, this is expedient and oh, this is too much. Uh, but overall, I loved it. Four out of five stars, and uh, I'm going to read more Rankin. If it had a different cover, would you give it five stars? So actually, it's funny that you mentioned that there is a, a series called the Brentford Triangle series, and they are his most successful series, and they have better covers. They do not have a sculpture on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I would read. <laughs> I'd be more excited to read them if they had normal covers. Andrew. Uh, I really am curious, because I'm sure this guy is a total weirdo. Do you have any facts about Robert Rankin? I do have some facts about Mr. Rankin, though, as you might have guessed, there's not, like, extensive work written on this man that I could really delve into and get some my teeth into. There's a, a pretty cursory Wikipedia article and an interview from 2009 that was actually from... 1999. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, sorry. 1997. <laughs> we'll see how up to date this info is. If Rankin, who is still alive, wants to write in and correct me, please uh, get in touch. Robert Fleming Rankin was born on July 27th, 1949 in London, England. He grew up in an area of West London called Brentford. Up the bees. Um, Brentford's uh, soccer team known as Brentford, is nicknamed the Bees, and they recently were promoted to the Premier League. You must mean football. I don't know what soccer is. <laughs> Brentford, as as Toby mentioned, it becomes very important to Rankin's work. Um, it became the setting for many of his novels, including the Brentford trilogy, which actually now has more than nine novels in it. Mm-hmm. So that trilogy is a liberal use of the word. <laughs> Rankin started out studying art, visual art, at uh, the Ealing School of Art, where he had a contemporary you may have heard of, one Freddie Mercury. Um, Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention, this book is dedicated to Freddie Mercury. Aw. Well, there you go. I was going to say, did he specialize in sculpture? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) He tried making a living as an illustrator initially, but grew disillusioned with sort of the freelance nature of the job. He mentions, you know, never getting paid or them taking forever to pay you. And it's sad that that is in like the 70s. And now when we're freelancers such as myself, are still dealing with the same things. Many of the covers of his books, as Toby has called out, however, feature photographs of sculptures that Rankin has created. Those sculptures, as far as I know, all still exist. And there were on display in 2011 at a display in Lincoln the United Kingdom, uh, which Mm. sounds like Toby's nightmare. (laughs) I like the idea that like really what he's passionate about is the sculptures. And he's like, fine, if I have to write a book to get the world to see my sculpture, (laughs) I'll do it. It's kind of like J.R. Tolkien wanting to write a book because he wants to make up a language. Yeah, or make a map. (laughs) So he began writing in the late 70s, though he didn't have his first bestseller until the late 90s. According to the interview I had, which is again from 1997, he only became a full writer full-time writer in like 1993 from beginning writing to going full-time Rankin estimates that he worked 39 different jobs 37 of which he was fired from and two which he quit (laughs) Woo! all right not not great not great there Robert well he (laughs) he knows what he wanted to do and it was not whatever he was hired to do um not 37 things and it was make sculptures (laughs) and put them on book covers (laughs) yep uh so Rankin's work while this one it seems like it's a pretty 
straight up maybe fantasy novel doesn't necessarily fit in is it a fantasy novel toby sort of or is it just like an adventure novel so that's the thing yeah there's a suitcase-sized man his work doesn't fit neatly into any genre, so he refers to it in his own way as far-fetched fiction. Sounds right. Later in his life, his work acquired a group of hardcore dedicated fans, including a fan club called The Order of the Golden Sprout. Apparently, some of his work focuses a lot on sprouts as a little obsession of his. In 2015, he published his memoirs titled, can you guess it? I, Robert. <laughs> that's that's good yes. that's good if you um, want an indication of the humor uh present in these books that's that's it <laughs> yeah just to give you an indication of some other titles of his work uh he's a big fan of the pun or like just kind of using other existing titles for example he has 2001's website story waiting for godmalding the witches of chiswick <laughs> the toyminator um all kinds of stuff like that the sprouts of wrath oh hey there you go that's the fourth book of the brentford trilogy oh the third book of the brentford trilogy is called east of ealing all right <laughs> amazing uh so the rest of this comes from a, from this 1997 interview so it might be outdated but we'll see in his search for something different rankin began writing about the strange and bizarre in fact most of his ideas come from the fortean times it's like my Bible, shares Rankin, my major source of inspiration. Besides reading this magazine, he has, quote, a library full of paranormal and occult books. But not only does Rankin read about mysterious happenings, he also collects weird stuff. His ambition is to one day open a curiosities museum. Outside of writing and visual art, he's an avid carpenter, and he lives in Brighton with his wife, Rachel. All right. I, w- I would say all of that tracks for me. Yeah, all of it tracks for me, too. I feel like he's going to open that, like, Curiosity Museum and be like, isn't it curious how great my sculptures are? <laughs> <laughs> I have so many curiosities. They're all my sculptures. Isn't that curious? <laughs> <laughs> great. Wow, great facts, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. He was hard to find stuff on. As if in spite of the fact that the, interview, the latest interview I could find from him was in 1997. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good job, Andrew. So that's uh, The Book of Ultimate Truths by Robert Rankin. Four stars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, there's something I'm curious about. Okay. Um, and it's, Bailey, did you read a book this week? <gasps> yes. Did I keep you on the edge of your seat? <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right, ready? The woman sat down at her desk. The woman pulled out the mic and put it in the mic stand. She waited and waited. Then the podcast began. Except the husband put it in the mic stand. The woman then stood up and viciously murdered her husband and everyone around for no real reason. Then the woman had breakfast. (laughs) Anyway, all this to say is I read a book called Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Mac, 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 return of the Mac once again. Do you think that's his ringtone? Return of the Mac. (laughs) (laughs) yes definitely 100 percent. okay so this is a weird one you guys has anybody else read blood meridian yes but i don't remember it okay no even though i promised i would for this episode i didn't that's okay toby that's okay okay so thank you many people call this book a great the great american novel it is very well liked on Goodreads, it has like a 4.2 rating average. It is very famous and loved by all. So this is a setup to say that you agree with all of that, right? Uh, (laughs) What this book is about is (laughs) the narrator is a unnamed person called the kid who later becomes the man when the kid grows older. And the kid... (laughs) is living in the West and he has a propensity for violence 
and he joins a group of people, a gang that are set with killing a group of Apache Native Americans. And then once they kill and murder and scalp all those people, they decide they just want to do that to a lot of people. So they do that for about 280 pages. And then and then there's an ending. So that's what the book is about. Um, that's just no commentary. That's just what it's about. It is extremely, extremely violent. I'm sure you can tell. To the point where you start to grow um numb desensitized yeah desensitized you start to grow desensitized grow numb to the violence even though it's like it's i was starting to mark pages like to give examples and i marked a page of like oh this is horrible and then 10 pages later i was like oh ain't seen nothing yet it's like that you know Uh. murder um rape desecration uh dismemberment and scalping um a lot and of people of all ages i guess like this is just a content warning for this section um there's a lot of talk about murdering like babies and animals and old people young people women mothers etc so it's just that for a lot a lot of pages with that with that said it is beautifully written in a Hemingway like stark prose way so when I was doing the like the woman sits at the desk that was clearly like my attempt at trying to do Return of the Mac Cormac McCarthy but so there is beautiful writing to it and it feels as you're reading it just feels like heavy but important and you're not necessarily sure why like at a certain point it's like why is this so affecting does this book need to exist it's just violence and violence but what is it trying to say about humanity so it's like i i went between hating this book and loving this book it was very like you said toby about the rv it was up or down really no middle (laughs) there is one character that is most of the characters are pretty generic aside from the main antagonist who's called the judge and he is a large man um, with no hair who is basically I'm not sure what he's supposed to be either the devil or like a vengeful god on earth but he just shows up whenever sort of I don't know people have sightings of him and then he's sort of always there when horrible things are happening so he's a really memorable character and I actually ended up reading the audiobook because I couldn't focus on the book um, because it was just too intense. So I had to read the audiobook so I could kind of zone in and out of the violence. <laughs> um, if I hadn't had to read the book for the podcast, I honestly don't know that I would have finished it. I think I would have been like, yeah, I get it. It's done. Um, but the narrator of the audiobook was definitely 100% doing like an Ian McShane accent. That's true. Yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's who I <laughs> would cast in this role. So if you're a Deadwood fan, you know, it's like that. <laughs> uh, so here's... I go back and forth with this one. There's a lot positive to say about the writing and about sort of the Americanness of it and how it points out sort of how awful humans are. But it also reminds me of, Toby, when you were talking about Martin Amos, about how, you know, these characters are well-written and that I really, really hate them. But it's like, what does that say about the author? And like, does that mean I should be reading this book if, you know, these characters are awful? So I'm just going to, I'm going to read a little passage from it. All right, so this is page 146. It is a conversation between the judge and another character, an ex-priest whose name is Tobin. What? Yep. Whoa. All right. And I myself have left the church. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. 
None spoke. Pedro's, I was never a priest. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Here's the, here's the passage. None spoke. The judge sat half naked and sweating for all the night was cool. At length, the ex-priest Tobin looked up. It strikes me, he said, that either son is equal in the way of disadvantage. So what is the way of raising a child? At a young age, said the judge, they should be put in a pit with wild dogs. They should be set to puzzle out from their proper clues that one of the three doors does not harbor wild lions. They should be made to run naked in the desert until, hold now, said Tobin. The question was put in all earnestness. And the answer, said the judge, if God meant to interfere in the degeneracy of mankind, would he not have done so by now? Wolves call themselves man. What other creatures could? And is the race of man more predacious yet? The affair of the world is to bloom and to flower and die. But in the affairs of men, there is no waning, and the noon of his expression signals the onset of night. His spirit is exhausted at the peak of its achievement. His meridian is at once his darkening and the evening of his day. He loves games? Let him play for stakes. This you see here, these ruins wondered at by the tribes of savages. Do you not think that this will be again? Aye, and again, with other people and other sons. The judge looked about him. He was sat before the fire naked, save for his breeches, and his hands rested palm down upon his knees. His eyes were empty slots. None among the company harbored any notion as to what his attitude implied. Yet so like an icon was he in his sitting that they grew cautious and spoke with circumspection among themselves, as if they would not waken something that had better been left sleeping. That gives you a sense. That's cool. See, that's the thing. Like, you may be like, I'm into this. I want to engage with it. Or you may be like, "Mm, you know, that's some white guy stuff. I'm not going to deal with it. Um, Trigger trigger warning, obviously, for violence and a lot of racial slurs. Um, So, yeah. That's so interesting to me, Bailey, because I feel like maybe me and, and many other people's only interaction with the work of Cormac McCarthy would be the movie No Country for Old Men, which to me has like a pretty gripping plot. So this sounds like the vicious and like violent parts of that movie, but it sounds like there almost is no plot. Is that true? Yeah, I think that that's pretty accurate. It's kind of like people compare it to... Moby Dick or um, the Odyssey, maybe the Carts of Darkness. It's if anything, it's like a road um, story because uh-huh. they're traveling from you know one part of the country to California and back. But yeah, no real plot. It's kind of funny too because Anton Chigar is um, the the antagonist from No Country for Old Men is very cryptic, but he doesn't need to say anything. He just acts on his on what he believes. Whereas like Judge. I just remember reading it. I like judge I, that was like paragraphs and paragraphs. Every time he was about to do something, he like had a whole sermon about what he was about to do. Yeah, he's he's described as one of the smartest people ever, and also one of the most horrible. It's like the violence of Anton Sugar with I don't know Ian McShane's <laughs> sermonizing. Um, so I I did like the ending, although it has been divisive online. So the last like fifty or so pages I thought were much better, but yeah, it's it's a lot. It feels like there's a point to the slog, but I'm not sure what the point is. So all that to say, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure how many stars I'm going to give it. Ugh. I mean, I guess I'll just say three question mark. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, from your review, that sounds about right. Does Does Goodreads have a feature where you can add question marks to it? I wish. I bet Story Matt. What is it? Storybook. Storygraph. <laughs> Story. Storygraph does. <laughs> um. Yeah, but Andrew, do you have any facts on on the Mac? Well, the Mac has returned once again. <laughs> but yes, I do have some facts. I will say um, Cormac McCarthy is sort of notoriously, I don't know if, if recluse quite fits him, but he, he doesn't 
like the public eye. So not a lot of this stuff has been confirmed, confirmed, and there's a lot more to read. Kind of like with Pynchon, like... Yeah, poor Andrew. It occurs to me, you've had to research the two most infamously publicity-shy authors we've had on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, later on, someone will give me J.D. Salinger, and we'll have a real fun time. (laughs) The triumvirate. Yeah. Uh, So Cormac McCarthy. Charles Joseph McCarthy Jr. was born on July 20th, 1933 in Providence, Rhode Island, though he was raised from a very young age in Tennessee. To date, he's written 10 novels, two plays, and two screenplays. Why are you laughing? And I know, I think I know, don't say it, because I think Dylan knows one of the screenplays he wrote, which we'll talk about later on. Okay. Finding Nemo. Yeah, sort of. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Now, his family relocated to Tennessee when he was really young, so his father could work um, in the Tennessee Valley Authority, which if folks don't know, that was one of the like New Deal FDR things that, to try to get people out of the Great Depression, which is still going to this day. And I recently worked with them. He was raised Catholic and attended Catholic schools, though he apparently, quote, saw no value in school and instead focused on his own interests. He initially attended the University of Tennessee, but dropped out to join the Air Force. While serving, he was stationed in Alaska, where he discovered his love of reading. Apparently, he was just a reading rebel, so once it wasn't assigned, he got into it. That sort of thing. He returned after his service to the University of Tennessee and began writing. Uh, He started with two short stories, which were both well-received and published in his school's literary journal and even received some awards from that. Uh, However, he did drop out before graduating and moved to Chicago. Now, you may have caught early that his name is Charles, not Cormac, but he began using Cormac as his pen name to avoid confusion with a popular ventriloquist dummy named Charlie McCarthy. (laughs) This This is how old this guy is. You had to worry about ventriloquist dummies at this point, (laughs) stealing your thunder. (laughs) I mean, it plagued everybody in the 50s. so he, he uh, didn't want to, there's a dummy named Charlie McCarthy. He didn't want to invite the comparison. Uh, so he started using Cormac, which was apparently a nickname that his aunts had given him when he was a, was a boy. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's also a better name. Cormac McCarthy. Way better. Great. Strangely enough, his aunt also called him ventriloquist dummy, but he didn't want to go with that one. <laughs> yeah, he should have. <laughs> Man, that would have been great. Around this time, he had his first child with his first wife, Lee Holloman. Uh, there's a little pattern here. They lived in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains and had no heat or running water. Living in poverty became quite common for McCarthy in his younger years. The marriage ended when McCarthy asked his wife to take a full-time job in addition to caring for their son, Cullen, so he could focus on writing his novel. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. Cool. Uh, (laughs) His first novel, The Orchard Keeper, was published in 1965. It was well-received, but not a commercial success. And this is another common um, theme among his work. People seem to like universally be like, that's a great book. And then no one buys it <laughs> up until the publication of All the Pretty Little Horses, uh, which is, I think, early 90s. So he, I think it's uh, All the Pretty Horses, yeah, not I, All the Pretty Little Horses. Yeah. All the Pretty Little, all the pretty little Ponies. <laughs> <laughs> While living in New Orleans, he was evicted from his room, uh, his, his $40 a month room for not paying rent, and apparently always carried a light bulb with him so he could read at night, even if he was sleeping on the streets. Wait, did he just have a light bulb nice. or did he have a lamp? Those are two like... <laughs> the, okay, the fact is listed on him ha- saying he has a light bulb. It does not make sense. So I, <laughs> I'm assuming a, it actually had a lamp component, but I do not know. He's a cartoon character, right? He just plugs his fingers into the wall socket and puts the light into his mouth. Or he just has a potato with him at all times, too. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. I'm still hung up on like this, this wife and this landlord kicking him out, being like, oh, this guy says he's a writer, no way, and then cut to, you know, like genius Grant. I don't know. How many how many yeah. husbands there are like can you please you know get a job so I can write and you're like ugh Cormac 
I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. <laughs> he did uh, start making some money from grants. Uh, he got a grant to do research in Europe. Uh, and the previous pattern repeated himself where he met Anne Delisle on this trip. They relocated to Tennessee and were so destitute, despite McCarthy apparently receiving and declining repeatedly speaking engagements that would give them lots of money, that they bathed in lakes and lived in a barn. Um, <laughs> hey, sounds like me. <laughs> well, yes. But are you constantly declining, like, multi-thousand dollar speaking engagements? Yes. Louise is furious. (laughs) This isn't meant to be, like, this is how he's chosen to live his life. I'm not trying to judge people who do this. But it does seem that he does not always care for the people in his life the way that they could be cared for. That's all I'm saying on it. Um, He continued to publish books during this time, um, and again, following that same pattern. But in 1981, McCarthy received the MacArthur Grant, which um, he used the funds from that to start researching the American Southwest, and that project would produce Blood Meridian. Mm. Again, Blood Meridian rapturously received, uh, specifically by Harold Bloom, noted critic and like tastemaker of smart people. (laughs) Um, But again, not a bestseller. Uh, Didn't make him a lot of money. But that all turned around in 1992 uh, with the publication of All the Pretty Horses and the subsequent two novels which formed the Border Trilogy. This catapulted McCarthy to prominence. It was his crossover to sort of mainstream success. And though he remained uninterested in public life, he um, became, you know, a household name. He even did his first television interview with Oprah Winfrey in 2007 when The Road, which you might have heard of, was selected as her book club book. I watched a little bit of Mm. the interview and it's almost unwatchable. (laughs) He's very awkward. (laughs) It does not surprise me. Um, The Road, which was released in 2006, went on to receive the Pulitzer Prize, continuing his um, sort of prominence. He continues to write and apparently has an upcoming novel called The Passenger, which will be his first publication in quite a while, but it keeps sort of getting delayed. So we'll see when that comes out. This is what I I teased earlier. Do y'all remember the movie The Counselor? The one where Cameron Diaz has sex with a car? Yes, that's written by Cormac McCarthy. Oh! (laughs) Whoa, that really bad one? I do remember that one. That is an original screenplay by one Cormac McCarthy. Wow. Oh, no. How many of those actors do you think didn't read this script before signing on? It got, it apparently a lot of the actors signed on just like Ridley Scott's directing a Cormac McCarthy script. So a lot of people signed up for this movie. And I think like Brad Pitt or someone said like he didn't know, like he only got his pages for it. It's like, that's a Cormac McCarthy script. Like how? Yeah. I mean, you would think it would be good. Yeah. Mm. Little did he know. To sort of wrap up these facts that have been going on for a bit, uh, he now uh, works with the Santa Fe Institute, which is an organization that studies complex adaptive systems. Please Google that because I don't understand (laughs) it. Um, Which is he's the only like artist or one of the only artists involved in it. It's mostly scientists. And he not that science can be an art, too, but it's also a science. (laughs) (laughs) Think about artists as a science. (laughs) He says he prefers the company of scientists to writers and seems to hate all other writers. In one of his rare interviews, he calls out Proust, uh, Henry James, and uh, Marquez. (laughs) He said specifically he didn't like uh, Latin American magical realism, and he didn't like authors that don't deal with life and death, which he called out Proust and Henry James for. I don't get it. What? Okay. And then... Also, his favorite book, his favorite novel is apparently Moby Dick, and he uh, does not have a computer. And no, none of those Twitter accounts are actually him, despite them getting verified (laughs) and repeatedly showing up as being a verified Cormac McCarthy Twitter account. (laughs) And those are the facts I have on Cormac McCarthy. Well, great facts, Andrew. I really appreciate that. That all, again, fits with me. Yeah. Just like, why insult Marcel Proust? The man's long dead. (laughs) <laughs> what I do? Yeah. 
Um, but yeah. Well, apparently he didn't deal with life and death, and death enough. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Three stars, question mark. I don't think I'm going to keep this one on my shelf. I want to thank my old roommate, Noah, for giving it to me. But um, here's the thing. I wouldn't read it again. And I don't even know if I really read it because I kind of zoned in and out. And I get the point, And yeah. that's it. You have no bookshelf for old books. <laughs> I just feel like it's one of those books that people are glad that they read and maybe want to brag about having read it. But if, if you're like, but what parts do you like? They would be like, uh... Andrew, in addition to having researched one of the most reclusive authors of all time, have you also prepared for us a lovely game based on this violent book and this really weird, absurd book? Oh, indeed I have. Well, good job. So, thank you very much. So the name of the game this week is Rankin McCarthy. Ooh. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So, Rankin likes weird puns. Cormac McCarthy Mm -hmm. probably hates them so much. Um, So... I've decided, basically to annoy Cormac McCarthy, to rankinify the titles of some of his books. Remember how we had those weird puns on, like, website story? Yeah. All that East of Ealing, all that good stuff. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read a plot summary of a new book. And that new book has a rankinified Cormac McCarthy title. Okay. So, for example, if I were doing website story as the title you were trying to guess, I would say something like taking place over the internet, the sharks and the jets fight over a, a Is it a um, Cormac Doom McCarthy glove. novel that you're describing? Always? Yes. I'm always describing a Cormac McCarthy novel, but with a Rankinified title. Okay. When you think you know the answer, yell Rankin and uh, throw it in. Um, I will allow people to steal because I think that there is enough. Of, it's not a, It's not super binary, so I think stealing should be allowed. And I have five of them, so hopefully we'll have a winner at the end. Party. All right. Here's number one. The tale of a man who spends his days wandering an apple farm, leering at all the people who are trying to take his fruits. Rankin? Oh, yes, Toby. All the pretty horse apples? No, no, that's not even close at all. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just remind you, his, f- his first novel, it was called something involving an orchard. The title of that book is The Orchard Keeper. This the, is a man uh, who, Rankin, the Orchard Peeper. There you go, Toby, the Orchard Peeper. One point for you. <laughs> this is going to be great. I would have also accepted the Orchard Creeper. We're going to move on to number two. A sociopathic man with a weird haircut systematically hunts down people who have too high heating bills. Rankin. Bailey? No country for cold men. That is oh. correct, Bailey. Well done. Yes! <laughs> Let's see if you can get this next one. A big old amphibian tries to avoid cannibals in a post-apocalyptic America. Rankin. Toby? The toad. That is correct. (laughs) Good work. (laughs) Good work. Toby, you can win the game with one more correct answer. (gasps) Okay. All right. This is so stupid. All right. A 400-page novel where a man just yells, come here, pony. Here, pony, pony, pony. Oh, oh, Rankin. Bailey? Call the pretty horses. Oh, that's right. All the pretty horses. Oh, yes. I am drunk with power. Uh, (laughs) All right. This is the last one. Whoever gets this correct wins. I think I feel pretty confident that one of y'all is going to get it. Okay. A simple tale about the daughter of a man named Todd. Um, um, Rankin. Toby got there first. Child of Todd? That is correct, ah. Child of Todd, based on McCarthy's novel, Child of God. Congratulations, ah. Toby. You're the King McCarthy. You're the Rankin Master. Well done. Yes. 
Good job, Thank you Toby. Very much. I rank me number one. It's good to know that he would have hated this. Yeah, Cormac McCarthy would have hated all of this. I know, and that's what made it so fun. <laughs> <laughs> we know Cormac McCarthy definitely would have hated. What? The choosing. <gasps> Dylan, you're skipping ahead, but I love it. Oh, wait, what did I miss? No, you're good. I was just going to compliment Andrew and then transition to you, but we can just oh, go to Oh, we can skip it. that. No, it's okay. We can skip my compliment this time. It's fine. <laughs> it was a good game, though. It was a good game. Uh, it, Thank you, It Toby. is time. It is time. No compliments for Andrew. It is time for... Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The, the choosening. choosening. Toby. Yes. Donde esta? Estoy aquí, you... en la casa de, de mi hermana. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, you have number 45, Señor Vivo and the Coco Lord uh, by Louis de Bernay. Nice. I actually, uh, from your weird little intro, I knew it this time. Oh. I'm looking forward to this book. I know very little about it, but it looks great. And you know what Cormac McCarthy would have really hated? What? Having conversations with people. Uh-oh. And even worse, Uh-oh. he would hate number 36, Bailey, Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Oh, yay! Ooh! Well, you know what? Return of the Rooney, once again. One Return of the Rooney. Weird connection is that both Sally Rooney and Cormac McCarthy inexplicably don't use quotation marks. So, I mean, maybe they'd be friends. <laughs> I don't know. Are, is Rooney's book enough about life and death exclusively? Ooh, good point. Is Rooney another author on the planet? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is she a person? Yeah, then he hates <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm excited for this one. I, I really liked Normal People, and this one, you know, is supposed to be just as good, so I'm excited. So that means, yeah. all right, in two weeks on our next episode, Andrew is covering Wuthering, Wuthering Heights. It's me, I'm <laughs> Kathy, I've come home. And I am reading Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you like what you heard, uh, please take a moment and rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, specifically Apple Podcasts, if that's how you listen. It sounds silly, but those reviews and those ratings actually do sort of expand our reach. And it would make us feel the opposite of how a Cormac McCarthy novel makes you feel. <laughs> Full of love. <laughs> and uh, if you want um, secret chapters of an unpublished masterpiece shipped to you directly in the mail, all you need to do is recommend this podcast to a friend. Word of mouth is our best advertisement. And don't worry, uh, I am the guru. I will telepathically know that you did it and send you secret messages in the mail. Uh, and don't be put off by that. Uh, thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Turkey for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. 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 books.